Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to Episode 3 of Conspiracy Unlimited. On this installment, The Murder of John Lennon. It was 37 years ago today. The narrative of the crazed lone gunman from Oswald to James Earl Ray to Sirhan Sirhan seems to be a common denominator in many high-profile assassinations. The official narrative certainly portrays Lennon's killer in much the same fashion. A disgruntled fan looking to gain some notoriety. But could Lennon have been targeted for assassination, just as he was set to re-emerge from his self-imposed exile and resume his political activism? Could his killer, Mark David Chapman, have been a programmed assassin, a Manchurian candidate? My guest, author John Potash, thinks it's highly likely. Castle Memorial was a known CIA conduit for uh, behavior modification for people, patsies and, you know, and for... Kind of training and developing assassins for the CIA, and that's you know that's the hospital in, in Hawaii, where Mark David Chapman was a patient at one point, and after coming out uh, after being a patient in their mental health you know mental ward, he ends up getting a job there soon after, and then you know just getting a job as uh, a security guard I believe it was, yeah or first a janitor then a security guard I believe, and then he he ends up getting having loads of money to travel around the world, staying in top hotels. This podcast is brought to you by Logo Creator 7 Software. These days, it's more important than ever to have a good image, especially if you have a small business or you sell stuff online or post on social media. But quality graphics can cost money, and advanced software like Photoshop takes time to learn. That's why I want to tell you about some amazing piece of software called Creator 7. Creator 7 is so easy to use, yet it lets you create super-looking logos, business cards, character mascots, you name it, in minutes. Whatever you create is going to look super cool and impressive. Creator 7 comes with hundreds of ready-made templates. Just click and drag to make changes, and instantly you have really impressive graphics right on your computer. Some clever folks have even ordered the Creator 7 software to start their own logo-making business, creating and selling logos and graphics for a profit. That's how good it is. But you won't believe the price. Creator 7 creates beautiful logos and designs right on your computer and works on either PC or Mac. And right now, it's available at an amazing price. To see it in action, just visit RadioShowLogo.com. That's RadioShowLogo.com. RadioShowLogo.com Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres Pursuing the truth wherever it leads 
Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. I've told this story a a number of times on my weekly radio show, The Conspiracy Show, and, and on Coast to Coast. But if you're just discovering me through this podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, you you haven't heard it. But back on December the 8th, 1980, I was almost 17, and I had just discovered the Beatles one year earlier, in fact. On a high school class trip to Toronto, I ventured into the legendary record shop, Sam the Record Man, on Young Street, and purchased the Capitol Records Beatles Anthology, 1967 to 1970. It was a double album. And I brought it home and proceeded to wear it out over the next year. But back to that night, December 8th, I was at my friend Tom's place just around the corner. And like a lot of people, we had Monday night football on the TV. But we had the sound turned down because we were playing that Beatles album on on full volume. And there we were, singing along to Strawberry Fields and Fool on the Hill. And so we missed Howard Cosell announced that Lennon had just been shot in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, where he died on arrival. And I remember we shut the TV off, and I was on my way home. I remember whistling a Beatles song in that crisp night air, walking on air, thinking that Lennon was about to release a new album, and perhaps, perhaps the Beatles might reunite after all. I was so excited, a lot of my friends were, and then when I got home, of course, my sister told me the news that Lennon had been killed. It was a, it was a punch to the midsection, and I, I was left doubled over, grimacing like Oswald during that prison transfer. I don't think I ever recovered, even though I'm now over 50. Of course, Chapman made a widow out of Yoko and his young son, Sean, lost a father. I was just a fan, but I, I felt ripped off. I think most Beatle fans felt as though we had been robbed of something. It was a cruel theft. For many of us, that sting still lingers. And so we are going to reopen the case and re-examine the murder of John Lennon. In particular, we'll look at whether Mark David Chapman might have been programmed to kill John Lennon. John Potash has been featured on C-SPAN's American History TV. He's been interviewed on dozens of radio stations around the U.S. and abroad. His work has also been published in the Baltimore Chronicle, the City Paper, Covert Action Quarterly, Rock Creek Free Press, and Z Magazine. He's worked counseling people with mental health issues and addictions for over 25 years. In May 2015, John released his book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. John Potash, how are you? I'm good, Rich. It's good to be talking to you again. Likewise. Here we are, uh, the 37th anniversary of the the murder assassination of former Beatle John Lennon. And uh, just recently we learned that Mark David Chapman will be up for parole in August of 2018. If uh, if you were a betting man, uh, does he get out this time? 
don't know. I uh, I would say no, but I I can't be sure. I know that uh, Yoko Ono has has been there almost each and every parole hearing. Why do you suppose? I mean, if this was any other individual, any other murder case, uh, I mean, it's been as I say, thirty seven years. Yeah. The odds are likely they'd be out on the street. The, the, the reports are he's been a model citizen in prison. Okay. Why Why are they keeping him behind bars, do you think, John? Well, they can say public sentiment, which is there, of course, uh, you know, because John Lennon was beloved by so many around the millions and millions around the world. But I, I think it's um, for political reasons in the sense that they don't want uh, Mark David Chapman to be known better, meaning they don't know what they don't want uh, people to know what he's really about. They don't want him to reveal anything of his history, which is which is interlocked with the histories of police and what I believe are police intelligence agents. And he was groomed, uh, whether he fully knew it or not, he was being groomed and you know hypnotized by police intelligence or U.S. intelligence, I should say. But uh, particular police officers were, were handling it for U.S. intelligence. And so that's what I don't think, you know, I, why I think they don't want the public to know more about him. So you you believe that Mark David Chapman was a Manchurian candidate? Yes. I, I tend not to use that term, but I know in other countries it's easier to use that term and be believed. I think in the United States it's harder to use that term and and be kind of accepted with as much credibility because uh, the the press here is just more, more controlled, I think, than most than other countries. And so, I, I would just say that uh, CIA documents uh, that you know have gotten you know seen have been released show that their their hypnosis techniques and their use of hypnotic you know psychohypnotic drugs have gotten them to the point that they are able to turn people into assassins uh, without their knowledge, you know, uh, under hypnotic suggestion. And, you know, the documents talk about their success. um, And so that's that's what I believe Mark David Chapman was. Yes, in the the end, whether he was the actual, you know, uh, assassin or whether Jose Perdomo, who was also at the scene, who was the doorman at the scene, you know, who also is believed to have fired shots, um, either, you know, whichever one of them did it, it was U.S. intelligence orchestrated, because Jose Perdomo, um, and his full name is longer than that, was, is known to have been a Cuban exile who was working for the CIA for decades, you know, going back to, um, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion, and then, you know, with Watergate, um, he was involved heavily with a number of CIA operations, and so, and there he is, you know, at the shooting of John Lennon. Who yeah, an, an interesting last-minute replacement for the regular doorman. Mm-hmm. Has yeah. that been has that been confirmed one hundred percent? I mean, or at least to your satisfaction, that it was the same Jose Perdermo on the door at the Dakota that night, who, as you said. Uh, participated in the Bay of Pigs invasion, was a CIA um, operative. Is there any question at that point, at this point? I don't don't believe so. I mean, I think Philip Strongman did the best work on that in terms of with his book. He's he's, uh, 
very well-known uh, music writer in England and produced a number of music books that were highly acclaimed. And then he wrote the book about you know John Lennon, and uh, he he used the full name, four different you know the two middle names, and says it's the exact name of the um, the man they have in the uh, you know Cuban archives as one of. Uh, the people that was working to, you know, uh, try to assassinate, of course, uh, Fidel Castro and part of the CIA squad and the, the Bay of Pigs invasion. And uh, there's just too much evidence that it, it, it's the same Jose Perdomo. What can you tell me about the the forensics or the ballistics uh, after the shooting? What what do we know? I, I, I believe it was reported that Chapman, the alleged gunman, used hollow point uh, bullets, which are just you know devastating, which yeah. begs another question: How would someone get a hold of hollow point bullets? But just leaving that aside for a moment, yeah. how many shots fired? Talk to me about, if you can, the trajectory, any inconsistencies in the ballistics or forensics. Yeah, my understanding uh, from uh, is that there was many more bullets than you know than uh, Chapman had in his gun, um, and so. You know, there was obviously had to be two two people shooting uh, with the number of bullets versus the number, you know, with the one gun holding a certain amount of bullets. Um, and so, you know, I'm sorry to remember all the exact number of bullets uh, because I analyzed a, a number of different political assassinations in my second book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And so, but, you know, I, it's just there, there was many more bullets than there were, you know, supposed to be in one chamber, uh, in, 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 I'm sorry, in his, Mark David Chapman's gun, plus the fact that the, yeah, the trajectory uh, was incredible in terms of the tightness of the shot in a circle, like so tight, they could, you know, they, apparently the coroner couldn't tell uh, one bullet wound from another because it was such an incredible sharpshooter type job that was done. In the, in the assassination of John Lennon. So there's just a number of elements of it that suggest that even though uh, Dana, Dana Reeves, the police officer who trained Mark David Chapman in to become a sharpshooter, uh, you know, did a pretty good job in that he scored, a, say, 88 out of 100 when he applied to be a security guard, and all you needed to be was 60 out of 100, you know, you get a score of 60 out of 100 to pass the test. Still, it was it was a highly trained uh, sharpshooter that really did the job, and so it suggests that it was really Jose Perdomo that carried out the assassination of John Lennon. So, um, you know, I think that uh, that's just some of the elements uh, that show that this was, of course, a U.S. intelligence-orchestrated political assassination. The... The uh, the parallels to the RFK assassination are quite striking, as you say. More bullets fired than were in the chamber of the supposed murder weapon. That harkens back to Sirhan Sirhan's. Right. What was that? A, a five shooter he had that Ivor Johnson. What was it? Something like that. And then, you know, he claims that um, he, he, all he remembers was being served a giant urn of coffee, whether it was Rohypnol or what, whatever was in there. Uh, it, it, it is. It's like we've seen this movie before, John. Right. Yeah. I mean, a Columbia University professor who was who was one of the top uh, experts in hypnosis said that. Sirhan fell in that 10% of the population that was highly hypnotizable. 
Sirhan Sirhan. And so I, my my guess is that Mark David Chapman was similar to that. He just fell in that 10% of the population that could be hypnotized. And um, William Jennings Bryant uh, actually said, I have him on tape, saying that, um, you know, with enough with enough time and drugs, he, he could hypnotize someone to do anything he wanted in terms, including assassination. And uh, he had, you know, allegedly bragged to two prostitutes that regularly serviced him that he had uh, uh, hypnotized Sirhan Sirhan to carry out the assassination of RFK. Now, the amount of people shot, I don't know if you heard about a uh, kind of Hollywood movie that came out a few years back, about five, ten years ago, where they just had uh, recreations of the lives of all the people shot in that RFK incident, and it was many. Um, we're talking about you know five or six different people were shot. There were so many bullets going off that um, now is known. One one reporter uh, said on one you know one film that, that I have that there was no way Sirhan got closer than two feet to uh, RFK. While um, he saw a uh, security guard take out his gun and fire within inches of of RFK. And uh, and so the coroner, um, knowing Thomas Noguchi, knowing what was going on with that shooting, how important it was, especially after you know JFK's assassination, called in the top experts from around the country to do that that uh, you know that autopsy with him, and they found that the uh, shots came from within about one inch of RFK's ear, from behind his ear, and right, that's where right. you know, the shots that killed him. So, you know, yes, you, you know. Mark David Chapman's, you know, assassination via hypnosis of John Lennon was duplicated earlier in an even bigger operation against RFK. And uh, I've, you know, talked to people that studied under um, a Harvard train, you know, Harvard expert in hypnosis too, who said he tells his classes regularly that yes, you know, Sirhan Sirhan, you know, was most likely by all all evidence from him at. Uh, analyzing Sirhan Sirhan for 500 hours. He was called in by Sirhan's lawyer to analyze him for 500 hours, and he found that, yes, he believes that he was hypnotized to be the patsy in, in carrying out you know, the actions he did in shooting at uh, RFK that night. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. 
You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. I, I just spoke with uh, Hollywood director Paul Davids a couple of nights ago. He has a new book out called Blowing America's Mind about his involvement in the LSD experiments at Princeton University in the late 1960s, before Princeton went co-ed. A lot of people don't know Princeton was a male-only uh, university. Uh, and, and he and the co-author, John Selby, uh, got caught up in this these LSD experiments. Of course, they were promised, well, this is, this will be wonderful. You'll, you'll trip and, uh, you'll, uh, it'll enhance your sexual prowess and you'll have spiritual enlightenment and so forth. And meanwhile, they were hypnotizing them, deep hypnotic, uh, sessions coupled with microdosing of, of, of LSD. Now that's late sixties. That's 10, 11, 12 years before the Lenin assassination. But that's uh, important. I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. That's an important part of all this story, I believe. MKUltra, that was part of Project MKUltra, and, and Project MKUltra started in 1953. It had under it 149 sub-projects. Now, one of the sub-projects was a massive funding of a front company called the Human Ecology Fund out of Cornell Medical School. They, distri- they gave money and grants out to over 100 colleges around the uh, United States, as well as hundreds of, of prisons and uh, men- you know, mental hospitals to do you know, uh, psychedelic uh, experiments on you know, paying people to, to take LSD and to take psychedelic mushrooms. Now, why did they do that? Um, I show the evidence that they did that for the purpose of spreading these psychedelics to hurt the minds of the budding civil rights movement, the you know the I'm sorry, the already uh, kind of massive civil rights movement in 1962 and 1963, but also to uh, hurt the minds of budding anti-war protesters. That um, you know, because the Vietnam War was already starting, was already getting off the ground, and there, there was already some people were you know, organizing to say, you know, what's going on over there in Vietnam. And some of these people were also the civil rights activists. And so, um, you know, and they, they were very successful in getting this popularized, LSD popularized. And some of the ways they did it is these experiments all over the place, plus uh, what I call um, astro, like astroturf campaigns. That's a PR term for fake grassroots. So they had these fake grassroots campaigns to... Show, to popularize acid in the supposed underground scene. And one of the supposed underground scenes was at uh, Timothy Leary's Millbrook Mansion. He was a Harvard professor who was who had gotten those grants from uh, the Human Ecology Fund. And he was actually just doing it with mushrooms at the time, but then a guy, a British agent named uh, Michael Hollingshead came in and got him tripping for three straight days on acid. And so he agreed he was you know, his fellow professors who was working with who were working with him on these psychedelic studies said his mind seemed to turn into jelly at that point and he became like a lap dog for Hollingshead, but he started using acid in his experiments also at that point. And he Leary ended up saying that he knew he was a witting agent of a, of the CIA, um, and eighty percent of his actions were CIA based. Um and he told I believe it was Paul Krasner that in an interview. And so he so he ends up so this is he starts the Millbrook Mansion he gets kicked out of Harvard uh, 
the uh, Mellon Hitchcock family who owned Gough Oil and Mellon Bank, etc., um, they give him huge amounts of money to start the psychedelic studies group. They give him his, their mansion. You know, Paul, this Billy Mellon Hitchcock gives him his mansion, and a number of MK Ultra scientists just house themselves at the mansion at that mansion, and they get all kinds of uh, cultural figures and different other people to come up to that mansion from New York City because it was an hour north of New York City, and they use them as guinea pigs. Uh, he's just giving them all different kinds of psychedelics, and they spread psychedelics as this supposedly you know, underground phenomenon. When here's the CIA scientists, you know, helping just experimenting on people and trying to get them to spread the notion that this is a wild new thing to do. And the same thing happened in uh, San Francisco with the acid test and Ken Kesey. Yes. Ken Kesey went through those experiments. All of a sudden, he's got access to unlimited amounts of acid from the place that once he did the experiment at the hospital, he started working at the hospital, giving keys to the acid, the supplies, and then he's bringing it home and having all these parties uh, with acid, even though before he did these experiments with acid, he had barely even gotten drunk in his life because he was a college wrestler um, and very serious about his being in shape and things like that. So here he is all of a sudden turning tons of people into acid, and then he starts the acid test with this group that is in, uh, seems to have a high number of military officers involved in it, ex, ex-military officers. Guys even from uh, even being popularized, excuse me, John, but even being sure. popularized by the you know from a button-down individual like Tom Wolfe. Right. Uh, and, right, and so it, it becomes almost accept. It becomes acceptable in sort of the high literary circles. It's you know what's interesting is that there and, and you know the origins of the Grateful Dead mm-hmm. uh, and how they were sort of used. So uh, you know they the they Tavistock CIA MI six mm-hmm. whoever using these musical artists to make. To help make uh, psychedelics acceptable, desirable, uh, on the one hand, and then using those same psychedelics, perhaps whether it was done in the case of of Mark David Chapman, to take out those same artists. I mean, the irony is is incredible. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the reason is, of course, and you pointed that out really well in your film of talking to Marshall McLuhan's assistant is the fact that they they just some of these well the british artists in particular were not realizing what was going on in in, in the way they're manipulated and that's uh, john lennon uh and for example on the rolling stones like mick jagger they they were against the war they were against the vietnam war they were pro-civil rights john lennon refused to play in clubs in the united states when they first toured the united states he, he wouldn't play in clubs that were segregated in the South, uh, and so these people were relatively political, but they didn't realize how much they were getting manipulated. And so, for example, in 1965, the assistant to director of MK Ultra, Robert Lashbrook, came over to England, according to uh, Ernest Hemingway's um, editor, A.E. Hotchner. He wrote a great book called Blown Away about the Rolling Stones. But in that book, he included the fact that uh, Lashbrook brings over to England in 1965 massive amounts of acid, tons of money, and agents, um, and get, tries to get acid in as many musicians' hands as possible. And so that same year, it's uh, this dentist of George Harrison uh, has George Harrison and you know John Lennon and their partners over for dinner, 
and proceeds to um, dose their coffee with LSD at a time when George Harrison had never even heard of LSD. And John Lennon was furious when he found out that they were dosed. And so this is an example of how this guy does this, assaults their minds with thinking he's completely from, immune from getting sued or anything else uh, because people who really think they're that immune from the law or lawsuits usually have that kind of power because they're working for British or U.S. intelligence. And so, um, and this is, of course, the same year as Lashbrook you know, had this plan and was carrying out this plan. And Mick Jagger uh, also it kind of held out from using acid until 1967. In 1967, someone finally, a guy named uh, Schneiderman, Dave Schneiderman, uh, gets him to try acid for the first time. And David Schneiderman's outed in the Daily Mail as having worked for MI6 and, uh, I'm sorry, MI5 and the uh, American FBI. And so now the FBI and, uh, of course, MI5 and MI6, um, we're all working together in collaboration in these kinds of uh, operations under you know, the rubric of MKUltra and the Tavistock. And right, right. And I argue the reason they did this, of course, was to popularize acid amongst the masses to hurt our minds and not you know, have us be as effective at our anti-war work. Particularly, and, and, and right after the, the Kennedy assassination, along come the Beatles, sort of yeah. a, a wonderful sell for the American uh, youth, the culture, youth culture, just getting over the devastation of the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. Never mind the Warren report over here. Here, trip out on this. So, uh, in many respects, the British invasion was just that. It, it was a British invasion. Yeah, and so and Jim Garrison was doing uh, great research on the you know JFK assassination at that time and uh, coming out you know on TV, national television, like the Johnny Carter thing. There's no doubt after serious investigation of all this, no doubt in my mind that the CIA played a part in the assassination of our president and President you know and you know, Lyndon Johnson's uh, high, concealing this fact. And so, yeah, it's, it was a huge diversion from the the massive, you know, uproar over what was going, you know, what really happened to the to JFK's, you know, in that assassination. Now, and I the wrapping up of, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. There you go. Rich. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and the ramping up after Kennedy's assassination, uh, his memorandum de-escalating U.S. involvement in Vietnam is reversed. And so about the time the Beatles land, Johnson is re-upping U.S. involvement in Vietnam. So again, very timely for the Beatles to land. I wanted to ask yeah. you whether you, you think that when Lennon came to Toronto in 1969, I mean, as far as he was concerned, the Beatles were finished, the Plastigono band was performing here, and he met with our great communications guru, Marshall McLuhan, and the, 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 according to legend, McLuhan basically told John Lennon, you are a useful fool. I don't know if he used terms like, you know, the, if he, if he said things like the Tavistock Institute, but, uh, Lennon apparently stormed out, thought about it, came back and said, you know, Marshall, I think you're right. And and I don't know, how much of that meeting do you think may have, I mean, it certainly changed, it seemed to have changed the trajectory of Lennon's creativity in terms of becoming more political. Yeah, I think, now you you turned me on to that, you know, that happenstance. I just document the fact that Lennon did get so much more political around that time. 
1969, and uh, it's you know it's fascinating that McLuhan did change his mind. Um, but yeah, he, he just I think it, it was a, a major spark. I mean, he, Lennon already had it in him. It was just a matter of McLuhan just helping him realize what was going you know what was going on, and turning you know, turning the faucets on for him to get much more politically active because he was already says i mean he had said in 66 that he was you know they talked about the, the war all the time and they were all the beatles were against it but uh really turning you know getting much more active in 69 was very important and it seemed like McLuhan was a huge spark for that and so lennon started you know different anti-war actions and started he uh hosted i think he him and he had a, a tv program i don't know if it was uh I mean, which one but it was one of the top TV you know talk shows in the United States he was the host for a week and brought on black panthers and anti-war protesters and all kinds of radical celebrities on that show when he hosted it for a week that might have been the Mike Douglas show I'm yeah, thinking yeah I think it was sure and so he also funded uh the protests against the Republican National Convention in 1972 he he funded the uh the realist Paul Krasner's uh you know, magazine that um, Mae Brussels was being um, printing a lot of great articles in, and she was a great uh, leftist researcher, anti-war researcher, and JFK researcher, and all. Um, and so he was doing; he just really turned it on in terms of the political protests. So of course they came down on him much heavier at that time too. And um, so uh, they were threatening to deport him. He was in a constant legal battle over that. And so um, he came out with his most political albums, of course, uh, you know, his most political songs with his solo albums in the early 70s. But he was still also fighting the effects of acid. He said, you know, I found uh, different things, uh, quotes of his. He said he threw up for an hour or two before performing because he was so anxious about performing by himself uh, when he never had that kind of anxiety, you know, or at least he didn't, he didn't have anywhere near the, as much anxiety when he was performing, you know, earlier in his career. And acid, that's one of the symptoms of acid. When you do, a, you know, a lot of acid, it causes more and more anxiety and inability to control that anxiety. And so he was, you know, fighting that also. So he finally goes, he ends up, you know, uh, just going into recluse and just raising his child for a few years. But when he comes out of that, um, and comes out with two albums and comes out with the fact that he's going to uh, play um, music and lead a march of Teamster, I think it was um, port workers in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Right, um, the day after he, the, the day after the assassination, he was scheduled to fly out and, and his yeah. reemergence into political activism. Yeah, and so they knew what, what he was going to do and they also knew how popular he still was and would be with the two new albums and how much he would be a threat to Reagan's, the Reagan administration's right-wing policies. So. John Potish is uh, with us. And, uh, John, you are a world-class uh, researcher. If you're looking for Thanks. world-class website hosting at a fair price, there's a company I want to tell you about, Pair Networks. Pair Networks. They host hundreds of thousands of websites. And why do I recommend them? Well, simply because they set the standard for excellence with a technical support staff that's second to none. Their support team responds so quickly. You wouldn't believe it. And they always give straight answers, which I appreciate because, quite frankly, I'm kind of slow. And that's important. Plus, they have top-of-the-line technology. That's why Pair Networks offers total reliability for your website. And 
done, it comes with a money-back guarantee. So whether you're a professional web designer, a busy web marketer, or you're just getting a site online, Pair Networks has a web hosting plan that's right for you. Log on and learn more at Pair.com. Let me spell it out for you. P-A-I-R.com. P-A-I-R.com. Pair Networks. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess he better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. We are back with John Potish, who is the author of Drugs as Weapons Against Us. We're talking about the assassination murder of John Lennon 37 years ago. Mark David Chapman up for, up for parole in August of 2018. Uh, and I think both uh, John and I are on the same page. It's highly unlikely uh, he will ever see the light of day because he, he, he knows too much. Uh, I, I want to ask you about um, the apparent mental deterioration of of Chapman in the in the months uh, leading up to uh, Lennon's assassination, back and forth between uh, his home in Hawaii. Um, he, he went to, he traveled to Georgia several times. He had, he had, uh, family friends there. Uh, I believe in Duluth. He was serving as a YMCA camp counselor. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, to New York. He was shadowing Lennon for a while. Then, uh, I think he was intent on actually committing, uh, the deed earlier, then backed out. Uh, and all the while, w- what we're hearing is that his mental condition just, as if he was descending into madness, hearing voices. Now, is that just sort of the official narrative, or do you think that was perhaps part of the the fracturing of his psyche, a la MK Ultra? Yeah, I think it was probably related more to the fracturing of his psyche with MK Ultra because the same things were happening with Sirhan Sirhan. He was doing a lot of repetitive writing, and uh, that's what uh, Sirhan. I mean, that's what uh, Chapman was found to be doing. And so I think the hypnosis and the drugs were were causing some of the same symptoms in both of them before their, you know, assassinations of uh, our beloved leaders, you know, RFK and John Lennon. And so I, I think that's what was going on. But a more inter- to me, even a more interesting aspect of all this traveling is the fact that he even went around the world twice in the few years before he killed John Lennon, and uh, he just didn't have the funds to do that. And Castle, I think it was Castle Memorial Hospital, gave him the money to do that. And and, uh, Professor Peter Dale Scott, a great uh, researcher here, he's a professor at University of California, he was a professor at University of California, Berkeley. Um, I think he's retired now, but he uh, said that Castle Memorial was a known CIA conduit for uh, behavior modification for people, patsies and you know and for kind of training and developing assassins for the CIA and that's you know that's the hospital in, in Hawaii where Mark David Chapman was a patient at one point and after coming out uh, after being a patient in their mental health you know mental ward he ends up getting a job there soon after and then you know just getting a job as uh, a security guard I believe it was. Yeah, first a janitor, then a security guard, I believe, and then he he ends up getting having loads of money to travel around the world, staying in top hotels, 
And as you said, traveling back and forth between Hawaii and Georgia, where his family was, and uh, you know, and staying with this uh, police officer, Philip Strongman identified him as Dana Reeves, uh, but Fenton Bressler, the uh, attorney who was a legal correspondent, just used a pseudonym Gene for him. But um, he's staying, staying with him. He's being, you know, he appears to be his handler because he's the one that turned Chapman from a person who hated guns according to Chapman's parents, to someone who, you know, is using guns and becoming a, you know, a good shooter. And then he also, of course, Dana Reeves gives him the hollow point bullets with which he killed, you know, shot John Lennon and killed John Lennon. So um, this is uh, just some of the, you know, massive evidence that a number of researchers have gathered on the fact that between uh, Chapman and Perdomo, U.S. intelligence, of course, appeared to orchestrate John Lennon's assassination. Whatever happened to Dana Reeves, do we know? No. There was there was no investigation of him uh, except by these independent, you know, researchers. So nothing, we don't know what, you know, became of him. But obviously police didn't, you know, question him to any serious degree. Um, so I don't know where he, he went after that. Also reports that uh, the Chapman, again, I mentioned the YMCA connection. He was a YMCA counselor, uh, that he was yeah. taken to Lebanon. Uh, and, um, there was, this was during the, uh, the Lebanese civil war, mid 70s, 75, 76, um, as part of a, uh, ostensibly as part of a sort of a YMCA counseling school, I guess, but was taken to, uh, either U.S. intelligence or British intelligence training camp in Lebanon, where perhaps he was trained. Do you do you know anything about that? Yeah, well, researchers say that it's they need to take him to a, a war torn area to what they call bloody him to get him used to sh- uh, firing you know weapons, shots, murder to uh, help condition him so that. Um, under hypnosis, he's more used to, to shooting guns or having guns shot and the sound of it and, and murdering, you know, to be able to carry out the murder. And so, you know, um, and after that, I believe he was he was stationed at a uh, South Vietnamese refugee camp and, you know, went under further conditioning there. And so, and South Vietnamese were the ones, the refugees from South Vietnam, a number of them were ones that were working for uh, American forces, you know, or at least the American puppet president of South Vietnam when they were at war with North Vietnam. And so a number of them were assassins, you know, as part of the Phoenix program and all that, and that were just assassinating North Vietnamese, or North Vietnamese sympathizers all over South Vietnam. So, and then another actually interesting thing about that, and this may sound like a crazy tangent, but um, uh, one of the people suspected to be involved in Kurt Cobain's uh, murder um, was taken, you know, believe it or not, Courtney Love mm-hmm. came and hung out at a, uh, a refugee camp in, in, I guess it was in England, um, when she was in her late teens. And she was taken there by a CIA agent, according to her father, and this, this man's name is Steve O'Leary. And I, I checked out his sources about when he died, and his, you know, and he said he got a letter from him admitting on his deathbed that he was working for the CIA at the time when he was traveling with Courtney Love for six weeks or more. Um, 
And so, and she proceeded to distribute acid. She brought a thousand hits of acid to the London music scene when she was 17 years old and distributed acid and other drugs like candy at that scene and in a number of music scenes throughout the United States. And that, you know, of course, paralleled the MKUltra operations of a number of agents, like I mentioned last week before, but there was a number of agents that did that kind of work, just taking tons of acid to different music scenes and spreading them around. And so... It's interesting that the uh, John Lennon of his generation, Kurt Cobain, the person who was believed to be involved in in his murder, um, uh, and it was at a refugee, you know, a refugee camp for a while, war refugee camp for a while, similar to um, you know Chapman being there also. Right. But it's believed that he was further, you know, uh, went through more behavioral modification there too. Yeah. John Potish is uh, with me, the author of Weapons as, uh, sorry, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. We're talking about the assassination of John Lennon 37 years ago. Uh, you mentioned Fenton Bresler, and, and uh, I think he wrote, you know, one of the definitive works on this whole assassination. He interviewed, I believe it was the chief investigator from NYPD, the homicide detective on this, and and. Bresler talked about how odd it was that after after doing the deed, Chapman simply sat down on the curb uh, and calmly thumbed through uh, his copy of Catcher in the Rye and waited to be arrested, which again, you know, has all all the markings of a a Manchurian candidate. I know you don't like that term, but for shorthand, we'll use it. I mean, my recollection in that book was the NYPD detective didn't didn't dispute that possibility. Yeah, so Bresser quoted that NYPD detective, and that detective was the head of uh, an area that had a million people. You know, it was a very large area of New York City. So he presided over an area of many, many detectives who were you know, being in charge of an area of a million people. And so this guy said, well, um, after examining Chapman, he said, I know what you're going to make of this, but he, he appeared programmed. That's just the best way I can put it. That's the way he appeared. He appeared like he was programmed. And so this is a uh, just a high-level you know, police uh, sergeant, police commanding officer saying this. Um, and so, you know, the higher-ups of the NYPD are, are, you know, do get privy to some of these things, operations that go on, uh, maybe directly or maybe just indirectly. But in, in, indirectly, he knew that people could be programmed, I believe. And that's the way he described Chapman to uh, Fenton Bressler. That's so. that's actually startling, a uh, startling uh, admission. Uh, you know, one of the other th- common threads through all of these political assassinations is there is either no trial because the suspect is gunned down, Oswald, uh, or they plead guilty, uh, as in Chapman, as in James Earl Ray, uh, as in Sirhan Sirhan. There's never a trial. Uh, what happened, do you suppose, between the time Chapman was taken to Bellevue Hospital that night for evaluation uh, and his arraignment? Uh, because... Um, as far as I recall, there was no indication that he was that he was going to suddenly plead guilty. It seems to me it was a sudden about face. This thing was supposed to go to trial. Mm-hmm. Well, um, not to take you on too much of a tangent yet again, but Martin Luther King's uh, the top researcher on Martha King's assassination, William Pepper, said that uh, with James O'Reilly, the uh, you know, the kind of uh, 
accepted assassin of, of Martin Luther King, he says that James Earl Ray was just given an attorney and, and pushed, the attorney was pushed on him and he was kind of pressured into uh, accepting a certain, you know, saying I'll, I'll accept a plea and to quiet him and just send him off into prison without much fanfare or any investigation or any trial. And obviously with Chapman, it was very easy to do that with his already being hypnotized. And so they just wanted to, to not have much evidence come out in court hearings uh, of any kind to expose what was really going on with him. Seems to me also there was an article in Time magazine and Chapman talked about undergoing a spontaneous exorcism uh, while he was in his jail cell. These demons came came out of him. Uh, is that consistent uh, in terms of in terms of programming uh, MK Ultra? I haven't heard about that, so I just don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard of that kind of symptom. I, I just don't know much about other symptoms besides uh, some of those things I mentioned. So I just don't know about that kind of. Uh, I didn't read that article, and I haven't heard of that before. So. We we mentioned the uh, the Manchurian Candidate uh, book in his hip pocket, uh, which has been kind of that's become kind of a um, almost shorthand, you know, for mind control. It was featured in Mel Gibson's movie Conspiracy Theory, I believe it was called Conspiracy Theory, that yeah. came out oh must be close to twenty years ago. What what do you? suppose is the connection with that book catcher in the rye is it used as a trigger yeah i heard uh when your film i heard one of your you know witnesses talk about that that was a common trigger and it was apparently used by uh tavistock institute and british you know uh intelligence were using that as a trigger um i i don't know much about that either in terms of that being used as a trigger but it's interesting because the you know the person the researcher you interviewed in your in that film that stated that um, I I agree with him what what he was suggesting was that the British have you know are kind of ahead of the United States in that regard in terms of uh, kind of some of these hypnosis techniques and and uh, mind control techniques and and that I I definitely agree with and can believe uh, because the, you know the British intelligence is so much older than American intelligence. Of course, American intelligence uh, has a lot more money and uh, a much more brainwashed population in, in the United States because of more control over the media and uh, and more use of our tax dollars for that versus healthcare and things that you have you take for granted in Canada and in Britain. But um, I uh, I don't know that much about the you know um, you know I guess that that book being a constant trigger you know being used often. Why allow, if I'm MI6 or CIA and, and I orchestrated Lenin's assassination, why would I allow Chapman to live? Why not just tie up that loose end the way that they did with Oswald? Why allow Chapman to live all these years? And who knows? I mean, he does have access to the media. He could, he could say something that, uh, you know, that, that could incriminate his handlers. Yeah, I, I can't say I know why they allowed him to live. Uh, I don't. I imagine if he did start to uh, be perceived as a threat, 
and and did voice some opinions about you know that he was brainwashed that you know, he was hypnotized or anything he wouldn't be living longer but i think that they did a a, a good job of of uh controlling him you know such a good job that they, they don't perceive him as a threat that way um now they may perceive that keeping him alive is almost a subconscious warning to other political musicians that's possible interesting that could be part of what it what it is because i i do believe they do that they do use lots of subconscious threats whether it be having him come up in the news every now and then with you know around parole or something or anniversary timing tactics uh with the way they kill people that's another subconscious technique they use to warn activists uh, you know about not not doing certain things so um that's that's a possibility i guess final final point and that is uh the other beatles paul mccartney ringo Starr. certainly mccartney continues i mean this guy can sell out a football stadium in seconds anywhere in the world he continues uh, to to capture the the uh, the minds and the hearts of of young people even at age seventy five, uh, do you think that he got the message somehow? I mean, he's never been overly political. He he picks his you know he's certainly into you know eating a vegan diet and 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 so forth, but never been overtly political. Do you think he got the message and he understands what happened to John Lennon? I would guess so, because after George Harrison's bizarre murder also, I think uh, he he probably is careful about, you know, what he says and does. You know, when two of your fellow bandmates are murdered, um, and he sure he suspects something around that, I would imagine, yeah, he he got the message. Can't leave that hanging. I, I can't leave that hanging. We could turn it into another show, but maybe we will touch on Harrison another time. But very quickly, so the the brain cancer, which metastasized, I guess from the, from the lung cancer, was that given to him during that uh, that break in uh, where he was attacked by an intruder years earlier? Yeah, I, I don't know for sure, but it was just such a bizarre attack of someone breaking his house and stabbing him. Um, you know, Bob Marley uh, was given a uh, boots with a, a, a metal, you know, sharp metal object inside of them by a CIA agent. And uh, according to witnesses, you know, at the time they didn't know this guy, this in, you know, new person in their film crew was was an, an agent. Uh, but they found out later, and uh, and that that toe that got jabbed by that. Um, kind of pin inside the shoe inside inside the gift boots uh ended up uh having cancer you know that toe developed cancer within a few months and uh mk ultra documents say how they were working on the fastest inducing cancer possible and they were having success and uh so marley gets cancer in that same toe and spreads throughout his body and, and that's what he dies of so you know it's not unprecedented all right, Jonathan, uh, a great uh, pleasure. Thank you again. How can people get a copy of Drugs as Weapons Against Us? Um, yeah, they can, you know, it's available on Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble, um, you know, including the number of shelves, uh, Barnes & Noble shelves around the country. And, uh, or you can get it directly from me at... Um, drugsasweapons.com www.drugsasweapons.com and what are you working on these my pleasure what are you working on these days John 
Um, well, I'm just finalizing the, a film uh, with my with a law firm that's just uh, making sure everything's documented right for a film based on drugs as weapons against us. And I do a film on my first book, The FBI War on Two Bucks Corps and Black Leaders. But uh, this film is much better. And um, and then uh, now that that's just about finalized, um, um, kind of turning drugs as weapons into a kind of a political novel that's going to try to make it, believe it or not, entertaining. Wonderful. It's entertaining. It's grim. Uh, but it's, uh, it is entertaining, to say the least. John, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rich. Well, it's just about time for me to wander upstairs and climb into the old Schlafensack, but before I turn off the lights here under the stairs, I want to fill you in on what's coming up next on Episode 4 of Conspiracy Unlimited. But before I do that, let me ask you, have you heard about this free guide you can download? It contains a list of online power tools to make you more efficient, secure, even boost your income. And best of all, this online toolbox guide is absolutely free. How do you get it? It's simple. Visit freebusinesstoolbox.com and grab your copy while they last. This guide has some of the very same online tools that successful business owners use every day, and each one is highly recommended. Yeah, I know. Some websites will offer some special giveaway like this, but then they stick you into a recurring program or some other deal. This isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try, no credit card needed, no cost whatsoever. Bright Biz is literally giving away this online toolbox guide completely free. It's sort of a putting their best foot forward type of thing. But this is a limited time offer, so grab your free guide today and take your business and your income to the next level. Visit freebusinesstoolbox.com to get your free guide to 36 online power tools. That address again, freebusinesstoolbox.com. Coming up on Episode 4 of Conspiracy Unlimited, two well-known Princeton alumni at last reveal the true inside story of how they got caught up in and nearly done in by the CIA's LSD-laced deep hypnosis research while they were Princeton students in the late 1960s. My guest is Paul Jeffrey Davids, co-author of Blowing America's Mind, a true story of Princeton, CIA mind control, LSD, and Zen. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.